Welcome back. We want to welcome Dr. Christy Bauman. Uh, she is a mother, psychotherapist, teacher, and author, and she's been with us before. The last time she was on, we spent most of our time talking about her most recent book, Theology of the Womb. Today, we want to spend some time reflecting with her on the past year with all of its trauma, and then look forward to 2021 and what we might reasonably expect. Welcome back, Christy. Thank you for having me, Paul. I'm so excited to be back. Uh, so since late we last spoke, you've completed your doctorate at Seattle Pacific University. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. That was a 10-year birthing process that finally finished in June. And actually, I do think the pandemic helped me do that because all of a sudden I couldn't leave and I had a lot of time um, usually at night once my kids were in bed, but I got a lot of time to just um, push out that research and finish that up. So that was a huge feat for me, and I'm excited about it. And what were you researching? Women's well-being. So I was looking at over 10 years of research for what women will say, over 500 women, what they say is the biggest factor indicator that predicts well-being over the lifespan of a woman particular to their spirituality and their sexuality. And are you able to share any of those results with us? Yes. I, honestly, if we, if I wanted to just be really quick and not give you the 161 pages of research, I would just say that the number one factor for women in their well-being is their own interpersonal investment in themselves. And so however much self-awareness and self-identity they have, contributes to their self-esteem and then therefore their well-being over the lifespan. And the second is community. So because women tend to be relational beings, the wealth of their community and the types of community they have, the more robust portfolio they have of community and input in their life is the other predictor of well-being for them. So that's probably the simplest way to say it. And I'm actually working on a book called Womaneering coming out in this next year with all of that research um, of the top eight things that women do to ensue the best kind of well-being for their life. Yeah. Well, then we'll look forward to having you back with us to talk about that book. I can't wait. <laughs> uh, so can you paint a picture of what it was like this past year as, uh, I mean, you were obviously working on your doctorate, but also someone who counsels others about mm -hmm. trauma and abuse in their lives? Yes, yes. Gratitude and grief is probably the words that I kept finding my clients coming back to. And what was really hard is at the beginning of the pandemic, I went from seeing my clients and then some, it wasn't safe to continue to see them in person. And so even moving to virtual therapy was a grief there was something to grieve of not being in each other's presence in a physical way. So I think that was really hard psychologically for a lot of people. And it, it felt like a psychological trauma. It was like, there was a trauma bond, you know, um, there's this sense when something's happening, we do kind of gather our resources and we get ready. We hunker down 
for a hard season, for a hurricane, for a snowing in, whatever that might be. But with the pandemic, it felt like we hunkered down as a nation, not knowing when it would end. And we didn't have much time to build supplies. And so a lot of virtual therapy was how do we build supplies for resilience through something we don't know when it's going to end. And a lot of that was coming into looking where grief was popping up and where gratitude was showing up. I became really sensitive to what are you grieving today? What are you grateful for today? Because Mm -hmm. we have to cultivate resilience if we're going to survive. Agreed. And so what was it like for you as the counselor to do most of your work, uh, you know, using these teletherapy sessions? Well, part of my magic is being in person, something about, you know, feeling the energy and caring for people. So even though I would actually say there's some privilege to those of us who got to go home and do everything virtually and still have an income and still make money, right? It's, it's those first responders and people who had to be in the hospitals or in the grocery stores working that they didn't have the luxury that I had. So there was actually, I felt like a kindness and a privilege I had to engage and grapple with of what do I do with my privilege? What do I do that I can make money and still be um, virtual? And And what do I do with this extra time is actually nice, but it's not as beneficial for my clients as being one-on-one with them. So I think that was hard for me. I mean, there was hard to hold, again, my gratitude and then the grief of of, I can't give the best care that I could give. And Mm -hmm. this has also been a little bit of a reprieve and a bit of a sabbatical in some ways to just hunker down and hide out. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, were you personally touched by any of that trauma in 2020, whether the pandemic or the protests in Seattle or something else? Yeah. yeah so, I mean, both sadly, um, and, uh, I'm grateful the, when the pandemic first hit, the first time I actually left my house was to go to a protest. And mm-hmm. it was interesting what I felt churning in my heart of this is probably not the safest people gathering. Yes, it's outside. What do I do? I have my mask. I can, I had gloves on. I mean, I was careful in the physical sense. Um, I actually even told my husband, this is worth me getting childcare because I didn't feel safe enough bringing my children, which growing up in Seattle, that is something we can, we bring our kids to protest or we bring them to (laughs) different activities. We are those, you know, more liberal hippie people out there. And so there's something beautiful to, to bring our children to that. And yet it was just not wise. Um, so I was in a protest, um, with my church, my whole church met at a building. We walked down and it was a life changing experience. I felt so grateful for the gospel actually, which it it just blows my mind. But even when, you know, being here talking about moments that matter, there was a moment where uh, my pastor's wife and I were going over the bridge and she said, I think I want to go on to the interstate onto I-5. And I thought, I I just don't know. I don't want to take cars on head on. I just don't know. And yet she felt defiant. And I was like, okay, so there was a, a, a lot of us. I mean, there were thousands of us really. And so we start going onto I-5 and the cars start to stop. And 
you know, I'm having my own mixed feelings about what is happening right now. And at some point we've walked about half a mile and the cars are all stopped and we're walking around cars and we're holding our signs and there is a whole line of police and there are mostly black individuals where the police are that are being stopped. And so some of black women turned to our group and they asked us if we would get in between the police officers and us. And that was such a moment where you feel really aware of your mortality and you feel like, okay, I do have privilege as a white human and I don't have that much privilege if you have a gun or something that could harm me or if this goes bad really fast. And I remember standing there looking at that clear shield of that police officer. And I knew there were rubber bullets in the guns. But even knowing that, there's something of watching a war movie, watching violence on TV. And then there's another thing, standing there, knowing my babies are at home and wondering, like, is this worth it? Why am I here? And yet, that woman's face, would you stand in between us? Would you actually see what it's like to walk in my shoes for even five minutes? Will you see how afraid I live every day? And it, Paul, I don't know how that moment really changed my life, but it, something in me turned where it mattered to walk a mile in their shoes or to, to just experience what it would be like to not have privilege and to not be an authority and to be afraid. So that's how the pandemic started off with us. Um, so it's quite lively. And, um, and it was, it was heartbreaking. There was, again, the, the tsunamis of grief that kept washing over us um, and our community. And, and the pressure, like whether it was death or racism or, you know, some sexism, whatever the ism was that was washing over us of oppression there was something to just let it wash over us and grieve. Mm. And um, that's how I began my pandemic. Yeah. 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 Um, you talking about that experience reminded me of an experience we had in Ukraine uh, mm. because we were there during the Orange Revolution. Yes. Uh, and, you know, basically it's like you and a half a million of your closest friends, you know, uh, they're all protesting the, the election results. And actually, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Anyway, um, and so we were warned away, warned away, you know, do not go down there. You know, you're a foreigner. (laughs) All sorts of things could happen. And then finally, it was like, okay, this is way too historic, you know. Mm -hmm. So my wife and I went down there, and it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. I had never seen people uh just loving that much and caring for each other that much and Mm -hmm. and at that moment then i thought oh man it would be so great to have our son along with us who was a teenager at that point just as you're talking about you know with your children then and uh and so i kind of had a little bit of regret then (laughs) afterward um the woman in our office uh one of the women was married to KGB and a uh, nice guy. We knew him, you know, it was, it was great. And he said that there were snipers on the roofs and they were ready to take people out uh, if things got out of hand. And I was just like, 
maybe it was okay if Faithful. you know or you know so i mean it it's just this mess of you know uh influences and ideas and yeah. potentials and you know everything else like that yeah. uh so i i get that i really yeah. do i mean that's the dance of suffering right we don't want our children to suffer and yet what suffering teaches us if we look biblically if we look at what we learn how we stay humble how we understand resilience like there's it's there's this fine line of lord i want my children to be incredible humans in this world and i don't want them to die but yeah. you know just yeah. enough suffering that they mm-hmm. can be in, incredible humans but not too much and i i that dance is always so intriguing and i think that's what 2020 kind of brought us to is yeah. uh, so uh, okay lord suffering but not too much suffering or where is that line right. of engaging yeah. suffering Mm-hmm. Yeah, and much later, uh, when my son was grown, yeah, um, you know, we had been missionaries together. Well, with him for five years in Ukraine, so he was just well, you know, versed in missionary life and sacrifice, everything else like that. And so <laughs> he had the opportunity to go on a missions trip to Russia, you know, uh, for two weeks. And it's so funny because, like. We were missionaries, you know, and, and the first thing is like, is that safe? I don't know if that's safe, you know, and it's just yes. so, so paradoxical. Anyway, it is. Um, it is. Yeah. No, I mean, I was in Lithuania when that was happening. I remember seeing the images in newspapers and what was happening in the Ukraine. And it, it's so interesting that I felt invincible being mm. in another country, being in another culture by myself. Yeah. You know, I was going for the gospel. Like there was, I, w- I felt this safety or I'm not sure, um, but I-, I was untouchable. And then now when I think about sending my children, of course, there's that, that fear. And I, so I don't, yeah, I don't know what that's about, but there's a complexity <laughs> there. Um, it's, a, it, yeah. it's about the work of letting go probably. And, and trusting God. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and, and FYI, it doesn't change when they get to be adults. <laughs> oh, don't tell me that. I can't. I can't. Uh, um, so uh, in your book, Theology of the Womb, um, you talk about all stages of pregnancy, including, including postpartum, and you've written a couple of articles recently that I'm aware of now, uh, and one which just appeared online in Red Tent Living, which, yes. by the way, for everyone, is redtentliving.com. Uh, and one that's going to appear shortly having to do with kind of taking a postpartum view of 2021. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that, that term? Yes, yes. Originally... When I was working with my clients through 2020 and through grief and through loss and loneliness, you know, there was so much um, fear that was growing. Fear was growing. Fear was growing. Um, Anxiety was growing. Even as the election came around societally, the climate, everyone was trying to digest, if you will, all of these feelings. And it was just growing inside. And I I think something of 2021, someone said to me, well, I just can't wait till 2021 new year's. We're going to, you know, be okay. And I thought that's interesting because psychologically it isn't the actual holidays that we fear people harming themselves. 
right? It's actually right after. It's right after the celebration. It's right after the release. It's in the dark of the winter when spring is about to come. At least um, in the Seattle area, that's with, um, I'm trying, a seasonal affect disorder. That's whenever we fear most suicidality is happening right at that edge. It's when hope is about to come. And so I think it's interesting as I was thinking about this, what is our PTSD? What's our post-traumatic stress going to be from 2020? And then I was sitting there one night and I thought, okay, well, when we birth 2020, postpartum is going to hit. And it was just this epiphany for me of like, postpartum is not, you're not done. Yes, you have this baby. Yes, you have this child, but your body is still actually trying to figure out what to do with what it's let go of. And I think that's what maybe our bodies will all be doing is trying to figure out what we just lived through and survived. And what will we do as we tether hope? I mean, we, even with a vaccination, we might not even get there until summertime, right? There's something of these next months that are a bit jarring and it's a lot to hold hope. And it's a lot more stress when our bodies expected relief on New Year's Day. And I I think I want us to remember it's not kind for us to ask our bodies to respond so quickly. Oh, it's going to be okay. And we're such in a society where everything is immediate. Everything happens so immediate and we don't have an understanding of the patience that we need to have the resilience to make it to springtime, to make it to the hope. Um, so that was the feeling of, of the idea of postpartum as it translates to this post-traumatic stress. And I think, you know, what's hard for me is particularly in my story, my first child was stillborn and I almost wonder if 2020 was a year of stillbirth and of birthing a stillborn. And so now we're in postpartum and our bodies are kind of responding to birthing death in a sense. Yeah. And yeah, go ahead. Uh, so since you brought it up, um, yeah. the, you use a term in, uh, I guess it's theology of the womb, uh, talking about the postpartum being filled with quote, annihilating PTSD. And you mm. just mentioned PTSD. Um, what would those symptoms do you think look like in 2021. What does PTSD look like in this coming year? Right. I think it's when we engage normal activities that were normal and are no longer normal. Mm -hmm. Easy activities. So the first time you go and see your family that you have not, didn't see in 2020, or the first time you do something normal, like sit in a restaurant and you don't wear a mask, the first time you hug someone The PTSD is your body saying like, this is what I've known and what I was take, what was taken from me. And so the coming back into normalcy, I think we're going to see a lot of it. I think our bodies are going to feel it and we're not going to have terminology for it. So we're going to go to hug someone and we will either be grateful like we've never been before. We'll be really sad and we won't understand why we'll be overjoyed. And we won't understand why. I, I, I think it, it, the gamut, just like in postpartum, I think there's a lot of ways we could respond. But I think they're going to be in the simple moments that we have been asked to not do. 
Um, my kids wear a mask when they go outside, like what's going to happen, you know, when I'm not at the playground anymore saying, oh, keep your distance. Don't play with that child. Just play from afar. So what happens in those moments in my kids' brains when I say, oh, you're fine. You're free to go. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a cognitive shock. And they will feel feelings that they have, they don't have words for. And I think the same for our entire society. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot to take in. Yeah. Um, and and the other thing is too, if this would just end, you know, and and we could be done with it, and then we could move on. But it doesn't seem to want to end. You know, right. that's the other thing. Right. Uh, and the threat of it being something else. If this did just end somehow, if if um, it was eradicated in some miraculous way. What is the threat now in our minds of something else happening, of a a different kind of uh, trauma? And that's where you see PTSD. What if it happens again? What if something else happens? But you're right. There's something of the lingering of will this end? And even if it does end, what else? Because I didn't expect this. So what else is possible, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, everyone thought. I mean, you know, just speaking from a university perspective, everyone thought, oh, spring will be so much better than fall. You know, we put off all of the sports from the fall. We don't, we didn't have any sports. All the sports will be in the spring. (laughs) That's that's not looking super great right now, but, you know, we'll see how things work out. Um, Well, could you talk specifically about um, what you call trauma bonds uh, as the concept relates to 2020, you know, what are these things and what should we be aware of? From sure. There, there's like a goodness in some ways, a masked goodness of trauma bonds because you feel close to people, you know, you survived the pandemic. Me too. There's something of that. Um, there's a, there's a bond there, but also a trauma bond is a limited bond. Meaning whatever my individual experience was and whatever your individual experience was, I don't know the details of yours, but I assume it based on the trauma bond. I assume we experience the same thing. And I think that cuts out actually the individuality. And, and so we might expect the same things from everyone. This country went through the pandemic. This, the whole world went through the pandemic. And so there's a bit of a, a bond in in that process and there's there can be goodness we can play on the goodness of it if we are aware of it and then we also need to be mindful of how it holds us back from certain things the unexpected we don't know what to expect that's where i was going back to you may feel something differently when you see a family member you aren't allowed to see or when you weren't allowed to go to a funeral of someone you loved, a grandparent or something, or was, weren't with someone when they were dying and you wanted to be with them. There are these griefs that are very different. Some people don't know anyone who died of COVID. Mm-hmm. And some people very intimately know the grief of being separated and death. These kind of things we get trauma bonded on. And yeah, it wasn't, we aren't bonded by well, maybe we could push to be bonded on our resilience, but we're bonded on a really hard, terrible year. Yeah. A traumatic well, I, I, you know, I know that um, people talk, you know, in more like 
church circles and stuff like that of like soul ties you yes. know and and that there can be these obviously very positive soul ties like marriage but then there can be these abusive soul ties and people never quite you know climb out of it and it is always affecting other relationships you know that they have yeah, yeah um, that's exactly right a soul tie i mean what do you vow what did you vow in 2020 silently that you would never do again because of the cost of a pandemic because of the cost of a, a protest like there's there some places where we get stuck because we decide no i don't want to participate in something this difficult and um and we make it i mean i don't know if i want to go as far as saying we're bonding with evil but in a sense a soul tie is that and a vow though i would say psychologically there were some vows that everyone made the same way we made new year's resolutions we made vows when there was difficulty of i won't wear a mask i won't get a vaccine who knows what your vow was or i won't go outside until i get a vaccine we all probably made some vow with the lack of control that we had because we don't want to feel out of control. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm curious along with, um, with those lines, I don't know if this is a, a term or um, a posture, but I, I've noticed it in some of our Christian circles, almost an exhaustion of, of caring. Mm-hmm. It's almost like there's so much, uh, of course, a banner year with, protests, election, global pandemic. It was like the nightmare of all nightmares, but it's almost like a, there's a limited bandwidth for compassion and the capacity Mm -hmm. to carry the grief of others. And I I feel like in Christian circles, we're expected to bear the burdens of one another, but in a social media age where we have so many one another's and are so deeply connected to people Right. From a, such a broad area. Has that become even more pronounced now? And mm-hmm. what would be your counsel to those who have read so many Facebook posts that friends have shared from other friends who they're not connected to and they, they're praying for this person who they don't know and this other person and they got their own grief that they're carrying? What would be your counsel to someone in that position? Yeah, the work of the church, I every church staff my heart has gone out to I mean even counseling a lot of you know pastors or people on church staff and churches that are not making the money they need to stay open churches that don't I mean what we thrive on is being together even house church I mean that's how it happened in the days of old was the togetherness we broke bread together that's the people group we are that's where we get so many things from and so there's a kindness to maybe some of these big mega churches that my kids watch online on Sundays. Um, and then yet there's, you know, a, a handful of churches, especially just recently who, because of a Christmas Eve service or because of, um, you know, these special services that they did not want to give up are now quarantined or now in COVID and they're tired too. And so there's something that the pandemic is one bringing a virus that makes us tired and there's another thing of an entire year of, of being told we cannot be together, which is our, our complete calling, is we know the love of Christ because we, are, we love each other and we, we give ourselves to each other. And so I think that exhaustion, 
that's that's the farce of media sadly social media tells us we're connecting but really it's it's hard to connect with grief over online you know we comment on something but what is it for me to bring a meal to someone's house or to let them weep in my arms or to bring meals after a funeral we've been cut off from those processes and so we don't get the actually the dopamine hit the reward of being together and I think, you know, um, I think that is so hard. How many churches of friends and, and clients and pastors who, you know, we have some churches making broth and dropping it off on, on porches with communion. And then we have some churches meeting outside together. I mean, we're trying, I see the church trying to be so creative, but the church is weary and the resources are low and it's been a long time. And it's very hard to navigate what to do when media is telling you one thing, government's telling you something else, when you don't even know what is the best leadership. And so I think there's just so many levels of complexity to the exhaustion that we have to be kind. We have to, especially as caregivers in the church, be kind to ourselves, be kind to our staff, be kind to our community. Um, this is where we push into our resilience of what can I take? What still can I give? Where do I need care? I mean, this just, just, this is just the limited work. And I do think, you know, churches that have kind of gone back to house church and pods and only, you know, quarantining with smaller groups have been able to hold stamina longer but especially the masses of churches, it's, you know, it's exhausting. And so I think kindness is probably the only thing I could offer is kindness to your exhaustion and to your weariness. Um, because we have not been allowed to do, we don't know what's right anymore. We don't know how to go to a, a hospital room and give a last prayer or a last song, singing a song over someone who is, you know, entering into death and into heaven. We've been stripped of those kindnesses and those gifts that pastoral I mean that's what pastoring is shepherding and we don't I mean our brains have been trying to figure out is that good or bad is it, am I putting someone in danger or am I caring for someone that's exhausting um, because we've never shepherded and cared through pandemics Thanks for listening to Moments That Matter, a podcast that looks at the moments in our lives that come along from time to time that have consequences long after the moment, especially those moments that have to do with the choice of vocation. In his book, Let Your Life Speak, Listening for the Voice of Vocation, Parker Palmer speaks of a clearness committee in the Quaker tradition, wherein a group of older, wiser people ask questions of someone considering a life choice as a way of clarifying the next step. We may not meet with a committee about these big decisions, but we all have these critical junctures in our lives, which we can think of as clearness committee moments. We need to pay attention to these moments because they are profound and potentially life-altering. We'll relay stories from our lives and interview others about theirs, especially noting the clearness committee moments, those we choose to recognize and those that were sadly ignored, those decisions that were made with God in mind and those that were not. Our hope is that these podcasts will cause you to think of the same kind of moments in your life with new clarity.